Welcome to the Next in Q podcast, a not so safe space for all kinds of news, views, and dialogue. Brought to you by Quilliam International. This is Next in Q, and I'm your host, Mohammed Fraser Rahim, the executive director of Quilliam North America. Um, we welcome you all to this episode in which we are going to talk with Tanya Joya. Um, and we are delighted to be able to engage another uh, session where we are addressing the issue of de-radicalization, rehabilitation, um, and stories of jour- individuals' journeys in and out of extremism. So I want to welcome Tanya Joya, and we'll ask her a list of questions. But again, thank you for making time, Tanya. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me here. Absolutely. So let's dive right into sort of the conversation itself. Tell us a bit about yourself. Um, For our listeners who might not be familiar with your story, your background, um, and help them understand um, a bit about um, how you were raised um, before we get into some of the nuanced questions. Okay, so I'm from a Bengali, um, I'm Bengali ethnicity, and I was raised in Harrow, Middlesex, by parents who at the time were not very practicing Muslims, just culturally Muslims. Um, and then I was, I went through like a bullying experience in high school and I was chased out of town, which is why I ended up going to the east side of London and going to school there in Barking, Essex. And it was there, I was in an environment where political Islam and conservative Islam was it was just embraced there by the Pakistanis and, and the Muslim community a lot more than how the Muslims were in Harrow. In Barking, Essex, my friends belonged to different groups. I had Salafi, Wahhabi-type friends. I had Hizbat Tahrir friends, Al-Mahajirun friends. And they were the group that I was interested in in being friends with because I thought good conservative Muslim girls, they're, they're going to have a good influence on me. And I really, at that Age, at that stage in my life, when I was 17, 18, I was really looking for an identity and I had a, a, a longing to please God because I believed that previously in Harrow I'd been living a very un-Islamic life and I needed to redeem myself. So the, these were the girls I turned to, but they were very radical and they, they, they taught me about bin Laden and that wasn't, he wasn't somebody I knew growing up. My Bengali parents were not familiar with him, but my Pakistani friends and Algerian friends thought he was a hero and their parents believed that because he had helped fight the, uh, the Soviets and, and during the Cold War. And they told me this story that how he's like a prince. He could have lived like a prince in Saudi Arabia, but he went, decided to live in a cave and help poor Muslims in Afghanistan. So at the time I was, I was gullible and naive and I liked that story. I was like, Oh, it's like a Robin Hood story. And, you know, I, and I was really young and ignorant and a bit of a airhead. And when I was a teenager, so I really just believed in anything and I didn't want to, I, I wasn't accustomed to being a critical thinker or questioning um, my faith because I just didn't, I just thought, yeah, it's right because I'm born into it. During this time in Barking, around my friends, a lot of them were dropping out of school and getting married. 
So I felt the need that I had to, and I also saw this as a way to escape my parents, escape my family. Bengali culture is a very harsh culture. It's a very unloving culture. And as a as a adolescent, I longed for love and I was pathetic and all that. But I I was seeking a way out of London and the misery. And what I was learning from the religious scripture is that we we had to do hijra and we had to do jihad. These were concepts that were in are in the Quran to this day. And it's undeniable that it's there. So I took everything in Islam very seriously and and then my friends were like, oh, we're teenagers. And we're like, oh, we're getting old. We got to get married, which is ridiculous because we were thinking of like Aisha and all and the other women in Islam, child brides. And, 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 you know, of course, back in that age, they didn't live that long. Well, they didn't have good living standards. And, and we were just like convincing ourselves into just trying to think that way. It was like we were just trying to be ancient Arabs. We were just adopting new identities and trying to be people that we actually weren't. So I decided I'm going to go online and find a husband and then I'm going to live a happy Muslim life with seven children and it's going to be great. Uh, so I was online and then I met John and John was in Syria. He was he converted when he was 17 years old in Texas and he moved to Syria to learn Arabic because he wanted to learn Fusha, classical Arabic. And Tanya, if you don't mind me, just for the for their listeners as they be, um, so they're familiar with uh, who we're talking about. Um, also, under the pseudonym Yahya al-Bahrumi. Um, and um, how would you pronounce his last name? Because uh, John Jodralis? George Ellis. Yeah, no, George Ellis. George Ellis. George Ellis, yes. Yeah, it's George Absolutely. Ellis, yeah. So John... Uh, reached out to me if, several times and I, what I did like about him was he was, he was a convert and I thought that was very interesting. And in Islam in the early 2000s, converts got the red carpet treatment. We thought, Oh God guided them, especially if they're white. That's like, uh, we, we were all very happy that they joined our side and, and, so he wanted to marry me. I wasn't too inclined. I wasn't inclined to him because he was my age and I was looking for someone older and more experienced with life. But he convinced me and he impressed me with his Arabic skills. And he, he came from an upper middle class family. His dad was a doctor and a colonel from the military. And I'm, I'm really straightforward. I thought this is a way to move up in social mobility. And I thought I would have a good life with him because he came from a good family, even though they weren't Muslims. Um, so uh, we, he came to London and we got married after three days of meeting each other. And I had introduced him to my friends from Barking. And one of my friends, my, one of my best friends who was an Algerian girl had an Algerian husband who was part of a group that was calling for a caliphate. And it was, the leader was Abu Isa and he was a Jordanian from Hashimi lineage. But it didn't take John and I too long to realize that it was just going nowhere and they weren't really serious. So we left that group and we traveled to Syria, um, where we met friends from the same group, but, you know, it was like an underground group and going to Syria was a crazy experience in 2003 because it was the first time I really saw a society living under a dictator. And I saw how scared everybody was and 
it scared me too. <laughs> so, um, when I got pregnant, I decided I didn't want to have the baby in Syria and we were missing home too. So we moved back to the UK for a short period of time. And then we, we ended up going to Rochdale because John had some friends who invited us there. They wanted him to give them dower. So we went over there. That's when we got married legally. But then we left after two, three months and we came back to Dallas. And it was in Dallas when John was arrested for hacking into an APAC website, which is an American Israeli lobbyist group. He was hacking in, he, he didn't actually hack into their group, but he had bragged online about how he has the capability because he works at a web hosting company called Rackspace. And he didn't realize that he was bragging to an undercover CIA officer. So he was arrested and then he was sentenced to prison for three years. And it was during those three years that since I didn't have him in charge of me anymore and authority over me, I, I just became a little bit more independent and more in tune with PBS and American culture. And, um, and he saw that I was becoming, you know, I was fighting his, his, um, like what he wanted, how he wanted me to be. And I was just trying to be more like moderate and like calm down a bit because I liked Americans, but Americans were afraid of me because of the way I was dressed, the way, you know, with the niqab and jilbab and everything. And, and so Tanya, this is a good question to ask you as well. At the time, were you um, wearing hijab every day? You mentioned about niqab. Were you, did you, transition just to help the listener understand sort of where you were at in terms of your spiritual growth or your spiritual practice at the time. Right. So when I got married to John, he made me cover my face. He even made me cover my eyes and wear gloves and I hated it so much. But if I complained, he would reprimand me and say, hell's worse. So you better listen to me. Um, but while it was when he was in prison, I, I knew he couldn't do anything about it if I stopped wearing these things. But when I'd go visit him in prison, he said to me, don't come to prison dressed in uh, pants. You have to wear a jilbab because uh, I don't want my friends to see that you're modern and American now. So I would do that to go and visit him, which was a joke. And then the things he would do just for show, I just, I noticed like, you know, even though we're all trying to be very pious Muslims, a lot of it is just for show you know, for our, our peers to admire us and respect us. After John was incarcerated, you were able to get some independence and you were continuing along with that. So while John was in prison, I was watching channels like Fox Business. And it's not the same as Fox News, it's Fox Business. And I became in tune with Judge Andrew Napolitano, and he was a libertarian, he is a libertarian, and he would talk about freedom and American values, which I was completely ignorant of. I didn't learn it from John, and John didn't want me to learn these things, of course, because he was always afraid I would leave Islam. So this was my opportunity to learn, and then I, I came to know of Ron Paul and his candidacy in um, the American elections, and it was just fascinating for me because as a Muslim, I didn't see, I thought freedom was haram, but I didn't, and then I, uh, I, I thought, you know, we're slaves, we're just slaves of Allah, and if we don't obey him, you know, we're going to burn in hell, and it's all 
that indoctrin that fear indoctrination that's put into us. But I, I really admire and respect freedom, uh, the American understanding of freedom, and just freedom of thought, even. And that's not something we have in Islam because we have boundaries in Islam that if you think outside of Sharia law or the Quran and Sunnah, you leave Allah's protection. So I was afraid, but at the same time, learning these enlightenment thoughts were very intriguing to me. So when John came out of prison, we had, you know, we were butting heads a bit, but he calmed down to some extent because he was on probation. Can you give the year, the time frame too as well? Yes. Uh, so John was released out of prison in 2008. Um, yeah, 2008. And he was nicer to me and he, uh, like appearance-wise, he was trying to come off as being more moderate because his probation officer told him that uh, don't be growing your beard too long and don't be wearing Islamic clothing. Uh, how often are you going to the mosque? What are you doing there? So John was, you know, walking on eggshells and he was trying his best to be very careful. He also knew that if he stepped out of line, I would probably go tell his probation officer. So those were the best years of my life with him while married, when he was on probation because he had to be calm. But the day he came off probation, it was October October 1st, 2011, we left. He made me go to Egypt and I didn't want to go to Egypt, but John was scaring me because he was, he was telling me that there's going to be an, another American revolution. A war is going to break out in 2008 because of the financial crisis, the recession. And I was watching a lot of RT television, you know, Russian television. And that channel was just full of conspiracy theories against America. So that wasn't healthy for me. And being an isolated wife at home, I was homeschooling my two, my two children, my, my eldest two at the time. I, you know, really, John was my source to the outside world other than the internet. No, so Tanya, actually, I was going to ask, while you're, this made me think about, while you are talking with John, had you had any contact with other American Muslims who, regardless of the framing of they are moderate or not, had you had interaction with them during your time being in the United States? And just thinking about, you know, obviously, there are uh, there are wealth of perspectives in the American Muslim community and just figuring out like what sort of mosque did you all attend? Were you at home more often than not? Um, just trying to understand sort of the, the context that you are operating in at this time. Yeah, absolutely. So while John was in prison, I was visiting Plano Mosque and this area, it's it's watered by money there's so much wealth and the muslim communities are very very educated they're doing very well a lot of them used to support republicans the republican party even during bush's time so they were conservatives too and in you know interacting with them i realized they lived the good life you know and it was very different from where i had grown up my background growing up in the Bengali community. So, you know, I was, I was kind of mesmerized by it all. And I, they, I realized, look, they lived the American dream and this, I, I have a chance of this too, I thought. 
but it wasn't John's intentions. John was like, oh, this is, this life, this, this money and this wealth and how beautiful the roads are and the buildings are. It's all, it's all a deception of the dunya, the world. And it's just, it's, it's the devil's way, a shaitan, the devil's way of pulling your heart away from Allah. So it, he was saying it's a fitna. And, um, I was like, yeah, whatever. I still like it. But, I was just, at the same time, I was still always trying to be a good wife because I had children with him and my children were my highest priority and I loved them so much. And and I only knew how to be a submissive wife. I That was the background that I had come from. So it's not like I wasn't raised to be a free-thinking, a free-thinking woman who can be independent and say what I think outside the box. I wasn't raised that way by my parents, but this was something these were, you know, I, I matured and living in America helped me grow that way. Absolutely. Um, I think it's very interesting. And this is certainly worthy probably of a separate conversation of just the dynamics of the British Muslim context and the American Muslim context. And of course, they're not a monolith, even within these communities, but certainly you're helping sort of unpack some of these ideas that are certainly um, uh, within both of these communities. Um, As before, I sort of gave you context on or asking more specifics as it relates to that. I'll allow you to pick back up as it relates to John getting off parole and the discussion of going into Egypt. So originally we wanted to go to Libya. Uh, that was because I was a big fan of Gaddafi, which is crazy, right? I, I even liked the Green Book. And it's it's even more bizarre that I liked him because he was into socialism. And that's like I have contradictory beliefs sometimes because I'm not pro-socialism, but I liked... I thought he was like the best dictator out of the Middle East. I was like, if I have to pick a dictator, it's going to be Gaddafi, I thought. Plus, there was only 6 million people in Libya, and it was before the war. So we were planning to go there, but then he was decapitated and things. And so we had to rethink where we would go to make hijra, to migrate away from the evil infidels of America. And I, he, John said, Egypt, we'll go to Egypt. There's no government there now. And John is an anarchist. Even I was to a small degree in London because I would always watch, you know, how the Greeks were protesting on the news. And I thought, oh yeah, you know, I, I lacked respect for authority growing up as a child because I didn't have good role models, um, at the time. So it was hard to trust authority. So John was like, we're going to Egypt. We're going to be free there. Let's go. And wherever there's anarchy and uh, a broken state, you know, Islamists, they, they love it. They want to, they can, they feel like they can thrive there. And I wasn't happy because I, I heard Egypt was a very dirty country. And I was like, I was a germaphobe and watching too much Dr. Oz. So I was like really paranoid about my kids getting sick. And um, and I, I can't stand it when I see trash on the streets. So, and, you know, if you go to Egypt, that's like a way of life. Um, so that was really bothering me. I wasn't happy, but John bribed me. He was like, you're going to have servants like you used to have in Bangladesh and you'll get all the help you need. And, and you're not going to like, at the time I was always fighting with him about wearing the hijab. I wanted to stop wearing it in America. And, and he would tell me if you don't wear it, you can't leave the house. So I was always stuck indoors because I just, 
I, I, I hated wearing the hijab, especially in Texas where it's hot, right? So he, um, he told me, you know, he, he was scaring me about America, the politics at the time with the recession. And he, he wanted the Americans to stop watching him. He thought if he moves to Egypt, it's going to be harder for them to keep track of him. And once we moved to Egypt, he started doing a lot of online dawah preaching and he had a, a, a website which was called something like the way of the strangers and he was teaching the criteria of the caliph like what criteria do we have for somebody to be a caliph and what are the requirements and how wonderful it'd be if we have a caliphate and he would just translate a lot of what Ibn Hazm would write so Ibn Hazm was a wazir of the first caliph the second of the second Umayyad dynasty in uh, Al-Andalus in Spain. So we were big into Ibn Hazm, so, which meant that we weren't Salafi, we weren't Wahhabi. Mm-hmm. So we were different in that respect. It's a minuscule school of thought, but it gave us the freedom to listen to music, um, it, you know, Jilbab and things. The niqab is not wajib, is not obligatory. I just had, I found that I had a lot more, I hadn't, I, I liked the Zahri, the Zahri, sorry in English, Zahri school of thought because it was based, they say it's based off reason and logic and just taking the language of the Quran, um, you know, not exactly literally, but linguistically and how it was used pre-Islam. So all of that stuff really fascinated us. And so we weren't as strict and rigid as Salafis. This is really insightful because what you're also laying out is, you seem to have been pretty studious as well and studying alongside your your then ex-husband at the time. Were you um, interested in sort of this knowledge that he was acquiring and also was this sort of a family conversation that was taking place oh, um, or was it just sort of by default? Oh, no, absolutely. I was his student from the very beginning and we studied the Mu'alakat together. He would always translate it because I spent like 10 years trying to learn Arabic and it, when I used to speak Arabic, it's just so funny because my grammar was so bad. You know, so I really looked up to him because he found languages and things like computer programming so easy where I found it hard. But then I got used to learning languages. So I got better eventually, but it took me a while. Um, so. John would also have halakas, so circles, where we'd invite people, his friends who were usually from prison that he'd met, and sometimes homeless people. I, I, we were crazy. We're like, uh, my home was always like a halfway house where we're like people coming constantly and going, just trying to learn from him. And eventually I had to stop that because I was like, I've got kids and I don't feel safe having these these people in my house, these prisoners and <laughs> ex-convicts. And, but they, they admired John so much and I took everything he said so seriously and so did I because, you know, he was really my only source to understanding Islam and whenever there, I came across an idea that I didn't like or I didn't understand, it was always Allahu Alam, Allah knows best. I don't know, he knows what he's talking about. So that's, a, that's how we would dismiss a lot of the crazy ideas. But there were times like where I would have sisters, you know, the wives of my husband's friends over and we would be having, we'd be talking and drinking tea and I would say something like, I don't like child marriages and I don't agree. And, and 
honestly, I wouldn't let even Muhammad marry my daughter if he wanted to. And, and then the other women were like, yeah, we don't feel so comfortable with that either. But then we would go very quiet because we'd be afraid that Satan's whispering in our ears. <laughs> we were like this paranoia that we'd end up being like, okay, let's pretend we never said that. <laughs> but um, it was there. It happened a lot. It happened on many occasions where we had to suppress our conscience because we were so afraid to, to question God and, it's sad. So Tanya, you were talking about uh, Ibn Hazm and you were talking about the broader conversation of critical thinking at the time, um, particularly when I asked you about, um, were you along with John, were you studying together? Um, So help me, help us understand just a little bit further in terms of the conversation of wrestling through some personal thoughts of questioning just your belief on many topics. Um, had you reached sort of this sort of viewpoint at the time that you were no longer sort of interested in this pathway? Or was this sort of just this slow process, as you would say, out of this more conservative value system um, that certainly you were surrounded with for years um, during your marriage with John? So I became very resentful of my religion around 2009. The more I was learning about freedom and Americans having rights, the Bill of Rights, and even human rights. I was like, this is incredible because these these rights that humans have thought of are more humane than Islam. And it bothered me a lot. It troubled me. And But John thought by going to a Muslim country, he thought I'd snap out of it. So, yeah, I practiced Islam only because I had to because I didn't know any way else to live. But I, I was like forcing him to buy birthday cakes for my kids when it was their birthday, and even though he thought that was haram. And I would try my best to distract him from giving dawah. I'd be like, just pay our bills instead of always being online, giving dawah. It'd frustrate me. But yes, at the same time, I also did. All I knew was Sharia. Even I would say to myself, even if Islam isn't true, um, this is just how people in society should live because it will be harm- harmonious and we would live in a moral society because my morals were dictated by God. I didn't, and I thought at the time you need to have a religion to be a good person. You know, everything was very black and white in my mind, but you know, I was luckily I, by coming to America, I stopped thinking that way and I smartened up. So Tanya, um, I think with those words, we um, running short on time, but we'll, pick up this conversation in the second part of the next episode of Next in Q. Sure. Sounds good to me. You've been listening to the Next in Q podcast, brought to you by Quilliam International, the civil society movement challenging extremism. Please support our work by becoming a member of Quilliam Circle at quilliaminternational.com forward slash circle. Tune in next time to see what's next in Q.